The sermon text reading is Micah 7, verses 1 through 4. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a beer, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confession is at hand. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, Before we look at God's Word together, I've got an announcement and then something I want to pray about uh, before we come to the Word. Um, Next Sunday, we have have a roundtable gathering. Uh, There's a roundtable and there's a gathering that happens at 9.15 every Sunday morning. And we always have a topic that we uh, go over. But next Sunday is unusual because we're going to take our our, uh, statement of faith from the church and we're going to go through it point by point over the next few weeks. Uh, actually, it'll probably take us a couple of months. So if you have ever wondered what we believe as a church or what we stand for and the biblical basis for that and all that other time uh, kind of thing, this would be a great opportunity for you to come and, and get involved in a conversation on that. And we can talk about that for a half an hour together. And that'll start again next Sunday morning. <clears throat> and before I start, I want to pray for uh, the Lundy Majors family. Uh, This last week, um, Angela Lundy lost her father, and uh, Aaron lost his dad as well, Um, both within about a week of each other. And so the family's going to be traveling both to California and to Nebraska to say goodbye to fathers and grandfathers. And um, and I want to just pray for that family and for traveling mercies and. And then we'll look at God's word together. So let me pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, we come to you uh, with every concern, with every challenge, with every reality of our lives. We should come to you with every joy and with every praise, but we are often remiss in doing so. But Father, my, my uh, mind is turned this morning toward the Lundys and, and the Majors and, and losing two fathers and two grandfathers in, in a very short period of time. And, and having to say goodbye uh, so close together is not an easy thing regardless of the circumstances. So I would ask for this family that you would grant them traveling mercies um, as whomever travels to California and then Nebraska and then the opportunity to say goodbye. I ask that the God of all peace and comfort would be with that family. And I pray, Lord, as we turn our attentions to your word, this, uh, this text which is powerful and elusive and challenging and lovely all at the same time. 
uh, is so extraordinary. I pray, Lord, that I would be clear and that I would be truthful and that we would not only learn, but that it would affect how we think and how we live and that we would leave changed as a result. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be uh, concluding the textual part of our study in the book of Micah this morning. We'll be looking at the last part of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, I want to give you one more word of caution. We don't have any heat in this room. So if the eyes in the heads of the person sitting next to you actually roll back and all you see is white, that's not good. So feel free to slap them abruptly and uh, to get the movement and, and uh, the hypothermia uh, over and done with. And, and I would love to help you with that. So if somebody falls into that category, uh, just, just let me know. But we'll be finishing up the text of Micah. And the next week what I'm going to be doing is kind of reviewing the book as a whole and then doing an introduction to the next book that we're going to be looking at, which will be a very brief book in our study of the Minor Prophets, and we'll look at that. And, uh, but I want to review something that I've said on a number of occasions because it's particularly germane to the text that we'll look at this morning. The book of Micah divides into three sections. Uh, section 1 is chapters 1 and 2. Uh, section 2 is chapters 3 through 5, and then chapter the s- third section is chapters 6 and 7. Uh, this book was written 37 or 2,750 years ago or thereabouts, and, uh, and Micah has a, a, a message that is fairly consistent in each three of those sections. The message is that God hates sin and that God will judge sin, but God will also provide salvation to those who are faithful to him. But more than that, in these three sections, the three sections follow a chronology. The book of Micah was written over a a fairly lengthy period of time, and it was during a period of time when the Assyrian army was coming down from the north, and and they conquered uh, Damascus in the north, and and they conquered Syria, and then they conquered Samaria, which was the northern capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they came into Judah, and they came right to the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And it was to that southern kingdom that Micah wrote that book. Now, the first section was written really before the crisis had started to occur. Assyria was on the move, but they weren't threatening Israel yet. The second and middle section was written right in the middle of that crisis. After uh, Damascus and Samaria had been conquered and the Assyrians had come down into the southern kingdom and things were hot and bloody anywhere and and everywhere. And it should have really gotten the message uh, to the people in the south because everything that Micah had talked about happening had happened. The third section that we're going to look at today is, is really after the crisis has occurred. What happened was the Assyrians came right up to the gates of Jerusalem and, and in a short period of time the people uh, repented and, and God miraculously spared the people and the Assyrians withdrew. You can read about that in, in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19 if you're interested in that. 
But there's always a fascinating question, I think. And that is, how do people respond after a crisis? The crisis has come right to your front door. You have had family and friends wiped out by the Assyrians in outlying cities and towns and countries and, and our counties and, and, and all these things have occurred, but, but you've been spared. The report is you're going to live. And, and for a long time, you've been hearing Micah preach this message of judgment against sin. And you realize now that in part that's true and that salvation is coming, but you haven't yet seen that salvation except that God has at least momentarily spared you from the Caesarean army. How are you going to respond? But you see, Micah's message didn't end there. Because Micah had told the people back in chapter 4, verse 10, and I'll just read this, you don't need to turn there. He says, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, because you are going to Babylon. So even though Assyria had conquered most of the southern kingdom, and even though the people of Jerusalem had been spared this crisis moment and the Assyrians had passed on, Micah was now saying, guess what? God still hates sin. God will still judge sin, but he is still a God of salvation. But your future will involve judgment, not from the Assyrians, but your future will involve judgment from the Babylonians. But how do you react when you've just been spared? We would all love to think that we will be pious the rest of our life. That we will live in faith and trust and confidence in the delivering God because I was one of the few who stood at death's door but were miraculously saved. And so I'm going to live faithfully for God and I'm going to believe people like Micah who tell me that God takes sin seriously and I'm going to repent of my sin and I'm going to live rightly before God. And even when the Babylonians come, I will be found faithful. What we find in the Bible is that there are very, 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 very few people who live like that. They're called the remnant. I can't give you names, I can't give you faces, but I'm just saying that the faithful are few. And unfortunately, nothing is new under the sun. 2,750 years have passed and mankind hasn't changed a bit. But looking at these people in the southern kingdom, what we have really is from, from chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through chapter 7, verse 6, is a picture of how the people responded after the crisis went away. Okay, But, th but that picture is summarized in chapter 7, verse 2. And let me just read 7, verse 2 for you. 
Micah says, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood and, and each hunts the other with a net. Now look down at verse 5, continuing this picture of how the people have responded. Micah writes, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from, who, from her who lies in your arms. For the sons treat the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her daughter, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah's assessment of the people who have been spared is, you can trust no one. You cannot trust your neighbor. You cannot trust your friend. You cannot trust your own family. You can't even trust the woman who is lying in your arms in bed with you. The righteous are gone, and there is nothing left but wickedness. That's how the people responded. The people responded that way basically for two reasons, and we talked about this last week. Because Micah consistently has said, you have a problem with sin and God is going to judge sin. And, and, and then those who are faithful will find salvation. But the people had two responses to that. And we saw that in chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Micah. Their responses were, our sin is not so bad that God is going to judge. And they said that consistently even when the Assyrians were at the gate. Isn't that ironic? My sin is not bad enough for God to judge it. Or what they did, and this was consistently seen in the book, was they created a God that they worshipped in their own image, who said, this God can be bought off. If we have sinned and we've done something that's offended him, all we need to do is either throw a little few more bucks into the, the offering plate when it goes by, offer another sacrifice, do a bunch of good deeds, and they got very extravagant in their good deeds, and God will be placated. The problem with both those two solutions is it never took care of the problem of sin that God said needed to be judged. But when the crisis pulled back, you see, when the judgment of God took a, took a break for a short period of time, so to speak, the people said, ah, you see, I told you so. He can be bought off or our sin was not great enough to be judged. And this is what we're left with. A people filled with wickedness. A people who go back to their own devices. Now, now, in the midst of this, I have a fascinating question. Because what we're going to look at is Micah turning toward hope. Toward hope. And a couple of questions at least came to my mind as, as I studied this. Number one, how, how, if I were faithful to God and I was part of those few who said, man, 
God really does take sin seriously. And look how close we all were to being wiped out. And praise God for his grace. And he has talked about salvation. What would I hope in? You know, what would I hope in? And, and, and then I would ask the question, God, why would you even stick around and continue to offer hope? And, and, and if you did offer hope, what should be my response? In other words, how should I live in hope? That's a big question. That's really, it, the, the question could be asked, how should I live in faith? You know, how, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. How do I live in hope? And so Micah, in a very fascinating way, is going to talk about what man should hope in and, and what he should do to hope. And, and, and I'm going to tell you in advance, the answers are very frustrating because they involve answers I personally don't like. Is that, is that really? I mean, because the first one, the first one is the word wait. And I hate waiting. I hate waiting for Christmas, and I know Christmas is coming on December 25th. Now listen to me carefully on this. I know Christmas is on December 25th. God calls people to wait for things with no date in mind. Without the knowledge of when it's going to come, how far in the future it may be, God says, wait. So here is Micah's picture of hope after mankind has been spared or part of mankind has been spared and people are left to their own devices. Micah says, this is the response of the remnant, if that makes sense. So look with me in Micah chapter 7. And I'm going to start in verse 7. Verse 7. Micah speaking here. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He continues, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Now, there's two components to these two verses, neither of which are overly encouraging. Micah has been told by God that the Babylonians are going to pick up where the Assyrians left off and serve as God's instrument of justice against his people for their sin. Micah knows that. He knows that is coming, and he knows he will likely live through that. He also, and we'll see, knows that sin has to be dealt with. Judgment is a reality. But Micah says, I will wait for God, the God of my salvation, and he will hear me. And like I said before, I don't like to wait. 
Now, you know this sermon is going to point to Jesus. I'm telling you that in advance. And we look back on the Lord Jesus. And so we know from where God's salvation comes from. It was 750 years in the future for Micah. He didn't know that. He didn't know if it was a week, a day, a year, a decade, a century. He certainly wouldn't have predicted 750 years. But I will wait for the God of my salvation. And throughout that time, he will hear me. That's number one. If you're looking for a three-point outline, this is point number one. If there is going to be hope for the remnant who will believe and trust God, they must wait for him. But then the second point is not even not much more encouraging. He says, Rejoice not over me, my enemies. When I fall, I will rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. You see, because what we want, I, I, I'm speaking for you, this may not be what you want. It's what I want. What I want is relief from challenge, trial, drama now. Okay? Micah says, don't, don't rejoice over me, my enemies, when I fall. Because I will rise. And when I sit in darkness, God will be my light. What Micah's word was not was God is going to deliver you from everything. You will never have to go through a hard day. You will never, ever have to fear an enemy at the door. You will never have hardship of any kind. Micah's indication here is I will fall and I will sit in darkness, but God will raise me up and God will be my light. Now, it's, it's easy to be highly encouraging with the reality that God is the light and darkness. And that is extraordinary. And, and to realize that when I fall, God will pick me up. But the thing to remember here is Micah had nothing to do with either of those things. God was his complete and total provision while he waited. And, and that's... a. That's an extraordinary thing. It, it kind of flies in the face of what was being preached by, by Micah's contemporaries and, and what is being preached today, and that is that God wants everything perfect for you all the time, and, and if things are going south for you, something's wrong with your spiritual condition, or things wouldn't be bad. That doesn't seem to be what Micah preached. Micah preached, my God is my salvation, and I will wait for him through darkness or through falling. And that is a vastly different message than what is most often heard today. Now, we continue, and this moves us into point two of what it means to have hope and how this looks like. Micah says in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord... Because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon 
his vindication. I'm just going to draw your attention back to chapter 6, verse 8, which we looked at last week and and the week before a little bit. And, And that is, you know, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. You don't need to kill your firstborn child. What I want from you is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. And when we talked about that verse, I suggested that all three of those points were entirely God-dependent and that man must recognize his place before God as a sinner whose sin must be dealt with by God. But here, Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. What is being said here, and this is Micah's ownership of his own situation and his own condition. Micah says, I am going to pick up and carry the reality that I am a sinner who has a burden of sin that has to be dealt with. I am going to own it. Do you see how contrary that was to one of the two points of the people in Micah's day? We don't have a problem. God's not going to judge us. Micah says, no, I have a problem that has to be dealt with, and I am going to own it. What a vastly different situation. But within that, there is hope because he says, until until God pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, and then he will bring me into the light and I will rest in his vindication. This is really and truly one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in all the Old Testament you can ever hear in one verse. Micah recognizes that he carries the burden of his sin and that God has the right to judge. Is that not what repentance is? Is that not what a man must come to in order to come to faith in Christ? And I will bear that burden until God draws me into his light and I see his vindication because judgment has been satisfied. And Micah says, in the meantime, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the God of my salvation. And he will be my darkness or be my light in the midst of darkness, you see. And so here's this extraordinary hope, even though in reality, the situation seems bleak. Well, from verses 10 to about 17 are kind of a picture of, of, of how people who believe this and trust in this and have hope in this will see it played out. And it's played out in human terms and in human conditions. But let me just give you a, a, a couple of examples. I'll start at, say, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Bashan, the famous cows of Bashan that the ladies were called back in Hosea. But but, uh, Bashan and Gilead were the, 
the luscious, greenest, knee-high grass that cows could ever be found in. He said, let your people graze in places like that. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might, and they will lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be death. In other words, he paints a picture of the person that has hope in the God of their salvation who is going to remove the judgment for their sin is going to be like a fatted calf grazing all their lives and the, and the mouths and the ears of their enemies are going to be silenced and everything will be lush and, and well with the souls of the people. And, and so Micah comes to the end of his book and he asks this question. You see, the people at the time and every person since that time right up to today has painted a picture of the God they want to serve because they have to. They have to say God is either not offended or he's a God that can be bought off. But Micah asks an entirely different question. Verse 18 who is a God like you? <laughs> now, now, just for a minute, think about this, because mankind, theologians, Christians, non-Christians, pagans, are great at painting pictures of God. This is what God is like, and God must be like this. Micah has painted a picture of a God he's waiting on who will provide for him salvation. A God who will take the burden of sin off of himself and give to that God. And his response is, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? I can't answer that question. But he continues, and I'm going to do, we have to do one little bit of brain work here. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? Now I want to stop right there because we have a translation problem. If your version says pardoning, it is a way to translate that word. But the word is exactly the same word that Micah uses in verse 9, when he says, I will bear my iniquity. So read it now with me, saying, Who is a God like you, bearing iniquity? You see, pardoning is the result of God bearing sin. When God picks up sin and puts it on his shoulder and carries it away, pardon is the result. But now we have a picture. Who is a God like you who carries, who bears my iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, the same word that's used in 6.8. 
And he will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. In other words, not only does God bear the iniquities of Micah and the remnant, he tramples it underfoot and he throws it into the sea. It is gone forever. The problem is dealt with forever. And this is what Micah says is my hope. And this is what I wait for. But this gets better. Throughout our talks in Micah, I have said that Micah and Isaiah were written at the same time. It's not junior and senior. They say the same things to the same people at the same time. I just don't think Micah had the same amount of time to say all that Isaiah had to say. And so in the book of Micah, Micah doesn't have the opportunity to expound the vehicle by which this is going to take place. Does that make sense? But Isaiah does. He gives us a clear picture or a clearer picture of what Micah is waiting for. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53. We're looking at only one verse and we'll be here for one minute. Isaiah 53, written at the same time, to the same people, about the same stuff. Okay? And this is what Isaiah says about the same thing that Micah is unfolding. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The same exact language as Micah chapter 7, speaking of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Isaiah chapter 53. Micah sits and he waits. In the darkness, God is his light. When he falls, God picks him up. He bears, he owns the reality that he is a sinner in need of salvation and God has every right to judge his sin. But I wait for the day when God calls me into his light and I am vindicated by the one who bears my sin and tramples it underfoot and throws it into the sea and drowns it forever and ever. Verse 20, back in Micah. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our father's from the days of old. This is what all faithful people have been waiting for. And this is what Micah pointed toward. The challenge, friends, and you know, I, I could give you 40 pages of application. 
our gratitude. Here's the problem. Waiting is hard, especially when we don't know how long we have to wait. And we're waiting for this suffering servant who bore our iniquity to return and take us home. If we are waiting for life to get perfect in the here and now, we are not waiting for what Micah looked at. We are not waiting for what Micah waited for. We're not waiting for what is biblical, quite frankly. We do have a God who is light in our darkness. We have a God who picks us up when we fall. But most importantly, we have a God who has drawn us into light and vindicated us because his son has borne our iniquity, taken care of the problem of the judgment of sin, so that we can hope for the glory that is to come. That is an extraordinary reality. Let me pray. Uh, Father, this passage points to Christ, and at its heart is the gospel. And I hope the gospel is heard every Sunday here. And I hope that in every conceivable way, it informs how we live and how we think. Because we spend a lot of time waiting for a lot of things. But we seldom wait for the return of Christ. We wait for the darkness to go away. We wait for you to pick us up when we fall, but we don't wait for you to return. And consequently, we don't live in light of that. We don't share the gospel. We don't live in the ways that we should. We believe that you can be bought off. We believe that you're not angry enough with our sin to have to worry about it. But none of this is true, Lord. And so at times, the cross of Christ is made a mockery of. So if this is true, and I know it's true for me, forgive us this. And may we be more like Micah who waits in confidence without knowing the when for a complete and total picture of you as you reveal yourself at the end of time. All praise and honor belong to our Savior and Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.